Hi, welcome to Tabs Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Robert Bryce. We're talking about energy. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. Happy to be with you. Thanks. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. I thought we could just start uh, with a brief introduction, uh, who you are and what you're up to. Sure. Well, that's how I, I tell my guests they have to introduce themselves, which is my custom. Um, <clears throat> so Robert Bryce, you probably know that already. Uh, first things first, I'm a proud father and husband. My wife, Lauren, and I've been together for 40 years, married for 36 and a half, I think. I have three great kids, Mary, Michael, and Jacob. Um, I'm very fortunate in my, in my life uh, to have a great family, great, great marriage, um, I'm also an author, I'm a, a podcaster, I'm a film producer, written six books. Uh, the latest is called A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. I'm the host of the Power Hungry podcast. Uh, I produce content of all uh, many different kinds. Um, also, I'm an executive producer of a documentary called Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. And I'm on Substack, as is Doomberg, robertbryce.substack.com. I'm going to say that about 16 more times, Joe, so... <laughs> gets people to go to my sub stack. I have a piece coming out soon on uh, transmission capacity in the U S so I'm making a go of it on Substack, like, like Doomberg is. So, uh, how's that? That's awesome. That's great. So you're obviously somebody who's well-educated in energy and I just, uh, I'd like to take the opportunity and just ask you sort of what your thoughts are on the overall energy picture, the macro stuff, where do you, where do you think we're moving and where do you think we'll kind of be in, let's say 10 years? Wow. <clears throat> How long do we have? <laughs> yeah, I know it's a it's a big it's a big statement to start with, but it'll sure. get us rolling. I think. No, no, of course. Uh, well, I, I will, I guess, start by saying the obvious, which is now we're almost a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, and so I think this is a. Uh, in fact, it was a year ago this month, February. <clears throat> a lot has changed, and now I will say that that Europe's energy crisis began before Putin invaded Ukraine. That is clear. Um, the, the Europe's economy was in crisis or your energy economy was in crisis before uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. But I think the last year we've seen a lot of upheaval. That's an understatement in the global energy sector. We've seen a rush back to hydrocarbons, including a boom in the coal market. I haven't checked today, but we talk a lot about the boom in oil and gas prices and how they've gone up. And that's true. They've come back down quite a bit. In particular, here in the US, we're looking at nat gas prices under $3 per million BTUs. But what we've seen in the coal market is really unprecedented, where uh, compared to mid-2020, we've seen an, a 6x increase, roughly 6 to 7x increase in the price of coal into the Asian market, the Newcastle marker. So check today, but I know it's over $300. So that's a 6x, full, a 6x increase over what we saw in 2020. So uh, I, I think if I was going to say what we have we seen broadly in the last couple of years, we've seen the endure, the, the continuing durability of hydrocarbons. Globally, we're still using roughly 82% of global energy comes from hydrocarbons, getting 5% roughly from oil, uh, from solar and wind together. I see it going uh, in the next 10 years, Hydrocarbons aren't going away, Joe. They are here to stay. And the President Biden gave his State of the Union. It was last night. It was kind of a laugh line when he said, well, we're going to need oil for another 10 years. And the whole, the whole Republican side of the House and the Senate, they all started laughing. And they were laughing at the president. They weren't laughing with him. 
because this administration has been the arguably the most anti-hydrocarbon administration in American history. And I think that that's without doubt a, a true statement. But I think in some ways, and I'll just stop with this because I could talk for a long time, we could about you know what the outlook is. <clears throat> in many ways, you're in Canada, I'm in Texas. What Canada, the US, Europe does in terms of energy policy globally and in terms of, I would argue, greenhouse gas emissions really doesn't matter that much anymore because the future of greenhouse gas emissions is going to be determined largely by what uh, is happening in Asia and in particular India and China and where in China is building roughly one new coal-fired power plant a week. India has said they're going to increase their coal consumption this year alone by 8%. So we can do a lot of things here and talk about climate change, but I think in terms of what that actual impact is going to be, it will be in the decimal dust in terms of kind of overall thinking about the massive numbers of gigatons of, of CO2 we're emitting globally. And I think we need a, a real reality check when it comes to that. So how's that for a summary that uh, maybe was a little bit too long? <laughs> no, that's great. And take your time with any answer and feel free to ramble. Um, one thing I noticed that you said about that was how the European energy market was already struggling and something i wanted to ask you about with that do you think that those are issues are contained to europe because of their you know lack of natural resources and their their need to import natural gas for example from russia and, and stuff like that and dense population or do you think that that's something you know if our policy continues on um whichever direction say you know the net zero that we that we may run into in north america well, okay, I didn't quite follow the first part of your question, but I'll address the last part and then why don't you let's revisit it. This idea of net zero, I, I, I see no scenario in, under which that can be achieved. I just don't see any, I mean, we have to deal, I guess, you know, Joe, I've, I've been looking at these different networks. I think about our, our energy and power systems, they're networks of networks, right? We have the electric grid. Well, that is a, the electric grid is built upon the, the, the rail network. It's built upon the gas network that gas pipeline network. The idea that we're suddenly going to retire these massive systems that we've built over decades, and we're going to do it, we're going to discard them all and replace them with some other system based on renewables that are going to require staggering amounts of mining of, of metals, minerals, and magnets. It's just not going to happen. And there's kind of a mass delusion about it. So that's my view on net zero. And Yet this idea that that phrase, as those two words keep being used as though they're somehow, this is a real possibility. It's not a real possibility in any kind of scenario that I can envision. And I've been looking at these systems for a long time. So um, I, I answered or addressed the last part of your question, but I didn't quite grasp what you were talking about at the first part of that. Um, just the issues that Europe was having yeah. with their energy market. Right. Yeah. Do you think that that's contained to them? Um, just due to their geography and natural resources? Or do you think that we could run into the same problems in North America? Um, like, I feel like they're sort of a little bit further ahead with yeah. certain technologies and certain policies, like, you know, the green movement, for example, like Europe is always farther ahead with sure. those things than we are here. Yeah. My thought is we may not be as in as much trouble because we have the capacity to get our own right. natural gas. You know, Russia yeah. can't turn the tap off from us. Right. So perhaps we could push further and not be in as much trouble as they were due to the war. No, that's, that's a good point. Um, I think that that's that 
well, here's what I would say is that Europe doesn't have Alberta and it doesn't have Texas, right? So yeah. that's the key change, right? You know, mm-hmm. you, it, 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 there's no Calgary in, in Europe. There's no Dallas or Houston in Europe. There's that, there isn't that same kind of understanding and natural resource mentality and, and wildcatter. I, it's not the right exact word, but you understand what I'm saying that there's a mentality in, in North America, but I'd say it's more specifically in Canada and the U S it's not in Mexico, but the realization that we're going to have to drill and that we, we have capability. We have the, the rigs, the red, the rednecks and, and the rights, we can do this. Right. And we have massive natural resources. The shales that we have in the, in North America are extraordinarily good. Europe mm-hmm. may have some of the same shales, but we, but Europe has this handicap and it is an incredible one that I don't know whether they can overcome, which is this um, mentality that is best typified by what we see in Germany of the energy vendor and the green party in Germany of uh, this idea that, Oh, we just will use less and we'll embrace poverty. I mean, in, in, in essence, that's what they are, are doing. We're not going to use nuclear and, and that, sentiment or, or sentimentality, I guess, even as I'm riffing here about it, doesn't exist in that nearly that extreme way that it does in Europe. And so, as I've said it, and I testified before the House or the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee in late 2021, and I said, don't do what Europe is doing. What did Europe do? They drove themselves into the ditch. They, they, they committed the fatal quadfecta. They underinvested in hydrocarbons. They overinvested in renewables. They relied too heavily on imports and they prematurely shuttered their coal and nuclear plants. Some of those things are afoot in the U.S. And and, and I think the Biden administration, they want to follow some of those very same policies, particularly when it comes to imports around metals and mining and minerals and magnets. And some of those things wholly would be would make the U.S. wholly dependent on supply chains from China. But there is enough of a pushback in the U.S., I would say, and I'd say in, in Canada as well that I don't see that kind of European model taking hold in the United States to an extent that it can ruin our advantage. And it is an enormous advantage. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you answered that exactly with, I think you understood the question there. Um, I think another thing that I wanted to talk to you about is the per capita usage of electricity in the world, because, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I don't generally try to guess on climate change. I'm not an activist, so I don't, I don't push the other way. What I am is an investor. And what I'm trying to do is gauge where the energy is going to come from in the future, and then try to find a good company within that sector. So as you made a good point about, you know, fossil fuels and um, I've had some oil and gas investors on here, and they've made some really good points on on why those are still good investments. Right. And I think you made a comment there about the emerging markets and their coal usage and energy usage that they're going to need. And you know, Canada and the U.S. I looked it up before the show. We're four and five for per capita electricity usage, and it comes with a certain standard of life. And and those other countries are going to want that as well. So. What what kind of um, materials or you know energy sources do you think they're going to be using to to up their standard of living? Sure. Well, I think one of them is obviously going to be the continuing use of coal. Uh, China mm-hmm. already accounts for more than half of global coal consumption. Their coal consumption continues to go up. 
Uh, we see uh, there was a recent announcement out of Indonesia that Indonesia is going to build new coal-fired power plants in part because they want to build batteries for Tesla, which is some kind of a perverted, crazy town kind of scenario. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, how do you make that up? Um, but I think the, the, the overall trend globally is, and I've seen it myself, and I write about it in my, my, my latest book, A Question of Power. Here it is, there it is, The Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. What I know for certain, Joe, is that <clears throat> seeing myself going to Beirut and seeing you know, the generator mafia at work, being in India, seeing people steal electricity as a matter of course, being in Puerto Rico or Louisiana after hurricanes and seeing local people using small gasoline generators, no matter where I went, and I say this is the same you know, now and it will be forever, is that people are not content to sit in the dark. They will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need because electricity is the key to modernity. And without it, people simply are not living modern lives. And so they know this and they understand it very well and they will do whatever, I call it the iron law of electricity. People, businesses, and countries will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. And make no mistake, we are in a situation where there are billions of people, roughly four out of 10 people in the world today who are living in places where electricity consumption on a per capita basis is about the same or lower than with the amount of electricity consumed by an average kitchen refrigerator in the United States. This is the defining disparity in the world today, the difference between the electricity rich and the electricity poor. So <clears throat> you want to talk about investing, you know, where, what, what are the opportunities there? I'm not a stock touter, right? You know, I think I've, I've talked to many people who are bullish on hydrocarbons and I can understand that argument. What are the other things that I think are the growth areas where, you know, money could be made? Well, maybe in the uranium, right? Because I see the nuclear sector is having a revival. Maybe it won't be in the US, but it could happen in other parts of the world. Um, I was just, I'm going to Japan in a couple of weeks. Japan is, is embracing fission and nuclear power again, despite Fukushima, despite Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They're going back to nuclear because they have to. So as I think about what are the macro trends and what are the fuels that I would say or the commodities that would be key to this, well, one is going to be base metals, right? Because of this, I think, in many cases, wrong-headed idea around the energy transition. What's that going to mean for copper demand? Copper demand is going to go through the roof, right? Because they're just, you have to have copper for these things. Same with nickel, cobalt, these other uh, metals that are essential. But I think it, it may be a play in the uranium market, in the coal market, or maybe in the crude market, or maybe in the refining business. I think there are many areas of the energy sector that, they're just not going to go away. And, the, and there are very few of these kind of pure plays in solar and wind, but there are a lot of pure plays when it comes to crude production. The Permian Basin in Texas is obviously one area. Um, and there are a lot of companies that are active there that are very profitable and paying big dividends. So there's a there's a ton of, of optionality. Uh, the question is, you know, which which script do you believe, right? Which, which scenario do you believe? And is China, is that, or is, China is China's demographics. Will China's demographics doom it, and and therefore a lot of global energy demand will be then cut if China's demographics are play out like Peter Zion and other people are saying. So, it's it's not an easy call. <laughs> How's that for an understatement of the night? I know, and that's that's what I love about it. I just find it so interesting the world of energy, and I think that's a great comment that people aren't happy to spend their time in the dark. They're gonna find electricity and that's why i like the energy sector because uh, there's no 
more, you know, guaranteed growth than in energy, in my opinion. I think it's just going to continually tick up. And of course, one of the most dense energy sources that we have is nuclear. And I actually watched a video that you posted the other day on New Scale and the um the loops that they had to go through to get their approval. It was like five hundred million dollars and two thousand pages. And 12, this comes 12,000 oh, sorry, twelve thousand pages. It took it, them six years. Their application document was twelve thousand pages. It cost them five hundred million dollars that they had to pay to the NRC. Their own internal costs were probably another five hundred million dollars. And then they put in two million. This is the part that just I mean, still just is gobsmacking or forehead smacking. They they added two million pages of supporting documents. I mean, how can you possibly assume that you can make it in a regulatory environment when you have such an onerous uh, permitting process? And I think it bodes very badly for the other in, you know the other companies that are trying to come behind New Scale to get their reactors permitted from the NRC. We, we talked about Doomberg. He's been on a guest on your show. He's been a guest on mine. He has a great piece out on Substack today called Nuclear Waste, in which he just says, we need to abolish the NRC. Just abolish it. It's, a, it's an anti-nuclear agency. And I think that's, that's about the, the correct assessment. And to me, that, that suggests that nuclear power is likely going to succeed overseas before it succeeds here in the U.S. In Canada, you've got a different story, particularly in Ontario, where Ontario power generation has kind of gotten the gospel. They, you know, they've kind of had to come to Jesus meeting and they're going to refurbish Pickering. I think some of that is due to the pressure that my friend Chris Kiefer put on them. And he'd be a great guy to have on your podcast, by the way. But, you know, the, the, the success of nuclear is going to be very varied around the world and which countries are going to be the ones that are able to uh, lead in the new, in the renaissance of nuclear is still an open question. Yeah, and the reason I bring up New Scale is because it's actually a company, it's a public company. Right. Um, the ticker is SMR if anybody's interested. Right. And it's one that I looked at because I believe in small module reactors. I think that they have a ton of potential. Yeah. And what I wasn't aware of was the enormous moat that you just described for nuclear companies to try to, you know, start a new endeavor in the right. u.s um i just wonder i feel like there's more to the story i thought you could maybe talk a little bit about the nrc just so i can kind of understand what's going on in that industry in the u.s a little bit yeah. further sure well i'll just add a couple of quick thoughts about you mentioned new scale and it is interesting they went public last year their their market cap today is about 2.3 billion dollars and this record mm -hmm. has made no money right but yes. there's a lot of promise and I think you made a good point that now there's a moat, right? That they have built a moat behind them that they're mm -hmm. the only ones in that have a permit to build an SMR now or, or design approval. The other company though is G Hitachi, who, as you may know, they have permission to now they're going to be the first SMR builder in Canada. Um, and that project has begun construction, which means they're miles ahead of new scale. I don't know how you play that G Hitachi BWRX 300 play. I don't know if there's a pure play on that, whether or which part of GE owns that. I don't, I haven't looked at that. The other company that is planning to go public this year in the US <clears throat> is X Energy. I think they're going to go public in May, was what I wonder, understood. 
And X Energy to me is very interesting in a couple of for a couple of reasons. One is that it's a gas cooled reactor. And so that technology is intriguing on a lot of different levels because it's a different chemistry and they have a higher uh, higher output heat. And so they have some advantage just in, in terms of that enthalpic efficiency, I think is the term of art, where you have higher outlet temperature of 700 uh, C or so, you, you can create more power. Um, and that's very, uh, very uh, agreeable uh, 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 outlet temperature for petrochemicals. And so X Energy has an agreement with Dow Chemical or Dow to put one of their reactors on in one of their Gulf Coast uh, petrochemical plants. So to me, as I think about, well, what's the landscape already and how it's being defined by these SMR companies, X Energy is, is in some ways more intriguing than New Scale because they are able to play in an industrial heat application as well as for electricity. So GE Hitachi, X Energy, New Scale, and then the other one is Rolls Royce. And mm -hmm. this is the British company, and they have said they're going they're going to deploy an SMR. Uh, the power density, as I calculated, is about ten thousand watts per square meter, which is just fantastic. Um, and Rolls Royce is a very uh, a well known and well respected industrial company. They build nuclear reactors for the British Navy. They build you know uh, aircraft engines by the dozens. They know how to build stuff, and that's key because they that and they know how to design it so that could be another pure play in that in that market I, I you know i haven't looked at what their market cap is or what their pe is or anything like that but as i look at that you know that spectrum of companies that are investable um rolls royce would be one of those ones that i think could wouldn't be a pure play smr company but one that has intriguing potential and because it's part of that intrigue is due to their close relationship with the British government and the Brits, when it comes to looking at Europe, all of Europe is screwed, but the Brits might be the most <laughs> screwed and have the most reason to really push hard for new licensing and, de and deployment of SMRs. And if you're thinking about that market, Rolls-Royce would be one of the odds on favorites because of their long footprint or their long history and close relationships with the British government. So talk for a long time but they're you know I've followed all these companies for a while and you know I, I'm just kind of fun to just kind of think through it about well what are those opportunities look like yeah but I think those are all really good points and just sticking with nuclear since I have you here sure one more thing I wanted to bring up was fusion now I know yeah. we've we've had some developments in fusion and I've heard from both sides like oh you know they're still miles away and then I've heard from other sides saying they've never done this before so it actually is a progression in the technology what what's your opinion on fusion Well I'm older than you Joe so I'm going to say that it's um you know one of these technologies that's uh, you know 20 years away and it's still 20 years away even though you know when when I was 20 it was 20 years away and I'm 62 now and it's still Right. 20 years away. Um, <clears throat> some of the things that have happened with fusion lately, you know, here in the U.S., they had this, uh, you know, this sustained reaction for a few seconds or milliseconds or whatever it was. A lot of hype around it. I think, you know, I'm not as well. It, it happened at some convenient times where there's some embarrassing news coming out from the Department of Energy. And this was something that could, you know, distract the news media from some other things that were happening in a DOE. Maybe that's coincidence. Maybe it's not. But there's a lot of money going into the fusion sector, including TAE, which is a U.S. company, another one called, uh, what is it, Cambridge Fusion. Um, 
they, they're attracting billions of dollars in capital. And so that's impressive. But it's still a very difficult technology. You've got a lot of problems with the, you know, incredibly high temperatures, incredibly hot, you know, radiation. My, my, my short answer on fusion is, okay, whatever. Let's work, let's focus on fission. We gotta make freaking fission work now. You know, fusion might work later and let's keep working on it, but let's apply ourselves to fission because we know how to do that and we can do it well, but we gotta get on it. Yeah, I agree. I think that if we came out with fission technology today, it would be much more applauded than it currently is. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I would like to think so, I guess. Maybe I, I, I just think we, you know, we got to get on with it. And the U.S., I think, and, and Canada's already kind of stolen a march on the U.S. And so I think there are things that, you know, we need to get serious about these technologies. And unfortunately, in the U.S., we're not. Um, and part of that is, you know, honestly, if we think about it, just step back. Well, the, the, one of the reasons why Europe may well succeed at nuclear before the U.S. is that they're under a, a much uh, more difficult set of issues than the U.S. Where, I mean, we have natural gas selling for less than $3 per million BTUs. Why, we don't, you know, nuclear, it's very difficult to make nuclear compete in a marketplace where you can, you know, produce uh, power for you know from nat gas selling for three bucks you know what's that less than thirty dollars a megawatt hour that's cheap mm -hmm. and natural gas plants aren't necessarily as complicated as you know a fission reactor and and probably don't need the manpower to build and and maintain yeah. and the permitting is easier you don't have the you know the waste you're not going to have greenpeace you know parachuting into your facility and giving you all kinds of shit about it and you know so it's you know the there are a lot of things that would recommend that you, you know, in terms of political risk, regulatory risk, price risk, capital risk, that would say if you're going to choose between nuclear and natural gas in the U.S., it's a no-brainer. In Poland or Estonia or Germany or Britain, that's a different story because your nat gas there is going to cost you 6, 8, 10x what it costs you in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a bit of a tougher sell. Um, and the thing with that, too, is... As we progress forward, let's say we got fusion tomorrow and everybody had as much power that as they... That won't, that won't happen. <laughs> that way. won't happen. But... tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. I know. I mean, but even hypothetically... Under most rosy, even under the rosy, most rosy scenarios, you're talking 15 to 20 years. And then you're going to have one or two of these projects. We we don't need... We don't, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we don't need one of these. We know, We don't need 10 megawatts. We need terawatts. We need trillions mm -hmm. of watts, thousands of gigawatts of capacity. If we're going to address poverty, if we're going to address uh, climate issues, we need terawatt scale deployment of nuclear. And that means we should be embracing fission now and making that happen. Absolutely. I agree. And I think um, where I was going with that <clears throat> was energy seems to be something that we can make not necessarily perfect, but we saw what happened in Europe when they lost their natural gas. They they found a way to find the energy. And I think as we progress forward, we're going to be using more and more energy. But the real issue is going to be getting that energy out to everybody's homes and transferring it through the grid, I think. And this is something that um, I'm also kind of interested in finding out where to invest with, you know, steel companies or whatever, whatever materials we're going to need to upgrade that grid. And I know you had a a podcast with Meredith and it, she wrote the book Fragility of Our Grid. Yeah. And I wonder, we could just talk a little bit about the grid and, and what 
what do you think, you know, could happen or how close we are to needing to do a major overhaul and upgrade of the grid, given our continued electricity usage? Um, well, first, I'll just uh, a shout out to Meredith Angwin. She's a friend of mine. I, I'm a great admirer of hers. She's been on my podcast five times. <clears throat> her book is called Shorting the Grid um, is the is the title. Um, and I highly recommend it. I probably sold more of her books than I've sold of mine, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, there's a big playpen. Mm -hmm. Also, I just want to inter interject here. Rolls-Royce, it trades on the London Exchange, the LSE, under the ticker RR. And the ADR is R-Y-C-E-Y. -Y. Um, and so the Rolls-Royce nice. SMR is apparently, I don't know whether they've spun that off, but Rolls-Royce, the Rolls-Royce group is going to have a controlling interest in the SMR part of that. And so... They've gotten, I'm just looking at a 2021 announcement here that um, BNF, uh, which is a, a British company, is investing in that. So is Exelon, uh, which is uh, the U.S. company, is investing in Rolls-Royce SMR's technology. So that's a quick aside. Now I've diverted myself, but I, I, <laughs> I went on a tangent there, Joe, and I forgot what your question was. I was just asking about the grid upgrades oh, right. and yeah. um, where, where, how close we are to needing those and where yeah. do you think they'll need them first and how might they decide to upgrade those grids? Sure. Well, a couple things. First is, <clears throat> and this is data I haven't published yet, but I just got it from my uh, a friend of mine, Matt Brandrup, who's with the Rural Electric Supply Corporation. He's based in Wisconsin. And he has new data on the, um, the kit that is needed for the grid, right? Transformers, wires, poles, lightning arresters, you know, of pads, all of these things, distribution transformers. In 2022, the inflation rate for all of that stuff across the board for all of those those things that that Resco is supplying went up 18% in one year. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing massive cost inflation across the board for all of the stuff that is needed to move the electrons from the generators to the consumers. And that's key because this talk about, oh, we're going to harden the grid, we're going to upgrade the grid, we can expand the grid. Really? Well, guess what? You're facing inflationary pressures that are staggering. And further, the supply chains are strained on, on the commodities that are needed here, particularly the transformers, in which this, they, they simply the suppliers can't keep pace with demand. So that's one set of issues around, one is the availability, second is the cost. But then there's this other, these other claims, and they're made all the time. And I just finished a piece for Substack. I'm going to publish it for in the morning tomorrow um, called Out of Transmission. Or I'm sorry, um, I forgot my title on my own. I have to look it up here. <laughs> um, Out of Transmission. And it, the, the subtitle is, want to double the size of our transmission grid at current growth rates? It'll only take about 140 years. You know, mm -hmm. this, this claim that we're going to make these massive expansions to our electric grid and that we'll double the size of the grid to accommodate these renewables, well, this doesn't account for any of the physic what is actually happening in the physical world and the constraints on the build-out of the grid and the fact that people all over the country, in fact, all over the world, don't want these big projects built in their neighborhoods. They don't want these massive 200-foot pylons built in their backyards. And so that is one of the key constraints. And it, so when you look at the growth rate of the grid over a multi-year period, we're only expanding at 1,700 miles a year for all interstate and intrastate. The idea that we're going to double it and do it in a couple decades, it's just pure. I know we're on a podcast, so I'm going to use the word 
bullshit. It's just plain <laughs> bullshit. And these academics and bureaucrats and, you know, they, they put out these studies with no understanding, no even a, even a thought given to how this will actually happen in the physical world. They have great models and fancy models and our models says we could do it. Well, congratulations for you and your model. It's bullshit because you're not looking at what is happening on the, the first principles. Where are you going to put it? And, and, you know, and so we're being diluted in many cases by these claims that we're just going to make this big expansion. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, and these are some of the topics that I like to discuss because if they can't expand the grid as they say they're going to, what are the alternatives? Like I know, you know, with the intermittency of renewable energy, perhaps it could be more energy storage and, you know, maybe that's a solution or, or what other solutions may come up in your opinion, that maybe people haven't thought of because they're just assuming the grid will be ready. Well, you know, again, this is this takes us back to the, the metals, minerals, and magnets. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and and I'm interviewing on my podcast a guy named Siddharth Kara. I've got his book, in fact, here. It's uh, having, I'm having him on in a couple of days, and I haven't. I, I need to read it. It's called Cobalt Red: How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. He went to the Congo and, and went and looked at how cobalt mining is happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's a startling, you know, bit of reporting in that he's just pointing out that the supply chain for all these lithium ion batteries depends on the mining of these, you know, these 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 uh, elements that involve in some cases really slave labor and the same with solar panels from China. And you see in the U.S., the solar market is going through con conniptions because of so many shipments are being seized by the border, the border police because of the Uyghur, uh, uh, the force, the force, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And so, you mm. know, this idea, oh, we're going to use solar. OK, well, fine. How much slave labor is it OK for you to have in your solar panels? What percentage do you think is OK? I think the right answer is zero. And yet this has been something that's been normalized and the solar industry has tried to ignore it. And, oh, we don't really, you know, it's not a real problem. No, it is a real problem. So I guess the short answer, Joe, and I've given you a long kind of a sermon here, but there's nothing new under the sun. You know, th these problems are not new. How our energy and power networks have developed over decades because of the, the very basic physics, power density, energy density, cost and scale. Why do they look the way they are? Why do they why are we using these these fuels that we're using? Because they can provide the enormous amount of energy we demand at prices we can afford. That's why. And so it, I just, you know, everybody's oh, we'll, we'll work, work on innovation. You know, that's kind of Bjorn Lomborg's thing. We'll work on innovation like nobody's thought of this before. <laughs> you know, it's like these are not new problems. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's, you know, I've had this discussion before, actually, um, talking about ESG, because, yeah. you know, sometimes certain products like solar panels, for example, they meet the E criteria, but once you get into the social and you get into these, some of the governance and, you know, some of the sketchy things that could be happening far away and out of sight, you know, they don't necessarily fit the bill. So um, the discussion sort of went in the direction where, they were getting certain ESG rated bonds and, and financing, but, you know, I thought perhaps, and I'm not overly educated on this. I'm just looking at it from the outside in, but 
I thought perhaps maybe some of that funding would get cut out once they started to discover what was going on with the, you know, the cobalt thing and, and the sure. years and, and stuff like that. Well, my line on ESG is that the E stands for emissions and the S and G are silent. I mean, it's just, you know, and I think yeah. that, that it's, it's kind of a joke line, but it really isn't, you know, mm -hmm. that when it comes to ESG, the, the, the carbon content issue is really the only thing that matters. And the rest of this social and governance thing is just being tossed overboard. And I think it's really deeply dangerous. I think ESG is a cancer on capitalism. You're, you're putting an unaccountable group of people who are not, you know, what are their criteria? How, how transparent is it? No one knows. And I had one guest on my podcast this is more than a year ago now, Joe Kraft, CEO and one of the founders of a company called Alliance Resource Partners, the second largest coal miner in the eastern U.S. They had half of their banks and their revolving line of credit pull out because of ESG. He's a coal producer. I mean, he's not what he's doing. is not it's not illegal. It's not immoral. It's not even fattening. And yet his banks are saying we're out now. He's found mm -hmm. other banks to you know back him. But, you know, there are other hydrocarbon producers at a Colorado elsewhere where banks are saying we're not going to fund you. We're not going to do anything for you. You know, get a, get a go away. And I think this is deeply dangerous because, again, it, there's no accountability. There's no transparency. It's instead a kind of a mob rule around these issues that are the most important commodities in our economy. And yet we're going to fence them off because of some vague ideas around how our companies should be run. Yeah. And this is an issue that comes up in Canada as well, yeah, right. because we have, so Canadian policy is, I would say closer to Europe. Yeah. In the sense that we try to reduce emissions and we regulate our oil and gas sector very heavily because of that. And, you know, they still survive because they're great businesses. But as a result, the product that we, you know, provide to the world on an ESG scale, for example, should be very high. Yet there's still growth in other places. And right. Canada still buys oil from other countries. And we're kind of like, why aren't we using our own oil instead of getting them from those unregulated places where, when we know what our emissions are and we don't necessarily know what theirs are, like Russia, for example. Sure. And, you know, it's, it's just tough to, to see that happen globally sometimes when we know what we're doing here. And, you know, then it's, you know, it doesn't go both ways necessarily. Yeah. Well, in the Russia question, you know, I mean, a step back and think about, okay, well, what, you know, you, you come at this from an investing standpoint. And of course I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an old guy now and I'm thinking about, well, will I be able to retire? You know, what, what makes sense? Where do, where, you know, where does a smart guy put his money? Mm -hmm. And I can see the, you know, talk about oil, the world's most important commodity. I mean, let's be clear. Well, where For is sure. it, where is it going? You know, is it going to continue to fall in price because we're going to see slowing demand and slower economic growth? Or is the disappearance of Russia? I've heard this this scenario. In fact, I heard it just yesterday, or the day before. Well, Schlumberger's pulled out of Russia. Halliburton's pulled out. Exxon Mobil is out at uh, Sakhalin. The 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 Russians, you know, they're they are not technocrats. They're not very well educated. They don't have a good technical class or technical universities to generate the own kind their own class of. Uh, petroleum engineers and others that are going to be clever enough to make their systems work. So does that mean they're 
two, three, four, five, six million barrels a day then goes away. And then that gives more power. I mean, the scenario that was painted for me by a guy out of Houston who's a very savvy guy, been in the energy business his whole career. Well, this is all great for the Saudis. It gives the Saudis more leverage. Nobody is celebrating more Putin's problems than the Saudis because it gives them more leverage in the global marketplace. So that may be true, but in a, mar in a market that where the marginal barrel determines the price, is that loss of that Russian crude over time going to then mean higher oil prices? Well, maybe. I'm not smart enough to know. But I do know that if I look at just the numbers and I look at some of the companies that are you know big in the Permian Basin, some of them are paying double-digit percentage dividends and their price-to-earnings ratios are less than 10. I mean, you've got a dividend that pays more than their PE. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I mean, you know, if you're just looking at it from a a pure dollars saying, well, where would I put my money? And is, but is that dividend sustainable? I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things going on with oil at the moment. For one, um, much like you mentioned with the grid, the inflation and the price of, you know, upgrading the grid, it's happening in the oil sector as well. So it's harder to put new rigs on because they cost money. And also it's harder to get more materials to to start those. And, you know, the workforce is lacking. There's fewer skilled workers. Yeah. Um, you know, companies are pushing back against the government or telling them to grow. They're saying we're not going to because you're pushing the opposite direction and saying you don't need our products. So they're doing, you know, buybacks and dividend increases rather than right. growing their rig count. And it's just, you know, it's a crazy world. And just sticking with the Russian invasion of Ukraine for a second. Um what do you think that is going to, there's only a couple ways this can go, you know, so there can be peace, like the war can stop, the war can escalate, it can move into a global affair, or it can just drag on like some of these, you know, Syrian or Iraqi wars. Right. And that's basically, you know, the only options that we have. And what do you think that's going to happen to the energy, the global energy markets as a result of this war, depending on, you know, varying outcomes obviously and nobody sure. can predict that yeah i mean i not my predictions are always bad right but i mean i think the things that for the i, I think we can see you know it's with some reasonable accuracy the next couple of years in europe are going to be really hard right? yeah and and britain i think this is you know and in, in more maybe than any of the other countries in europe and, and, and now we include italy but Britain is deindustrializing as we speak. I mean, you know, they're closing their coal, their car plants. You know, the flagship industries in Britain are, are, are closing. Um, we see similar things afoot in Germany that BASF is moving a lot of their some of their production to the U.S. Um, you know, it may accrue to the benefit of Canada. But I think, you know, when we look at the longer term effects of Russia and Ukraine, is the U.S. going to try and keep Russia out of the market, you know, and permanently move Europe away from its attachment to Russia. Well, if you read Cy Hirsch's piece in Substack today, he's making the claim that the U.S. bombed the Nord Stream pipeline and that this was something mm -hmm. the U.S. planned, right? That they're, they want to permanently separate Europe from Russia. Well, if that's the case, then those Russian molecules, those Russian, whether it's oil or natural gas, that's going to be more difficult or more expensive for the Europeans. Now, it's going to be great for companies like or entities like the Saudis who can import Russian oil, burn it in their in their power plants, and then export their own oil to Europe and saying, see, hey, here's our, you know, 
So it's kind of this, you know, money laundering or oil laundering system. But there, this disruption, it's, it's going to be hard to say what the longer term impacts are, will be except that. I think it's uh, the other thing that's clear is that the U.S. LNG market, the maturation of it and the, how quickly it's happened has been remarkable. I mean, it wasn't only just six years ago or so that we were exporting our first cargoes of LNG, and now we're one of the biggest LNG exporters on the planet. And so by the end of 2025, we're going to be exporting 20 billion cubic feet a day. I mean, that's a massive number. You know, a quarter of the or fifth of the production in the U.S. is going to be going into the international marketplace. So I think the international, what are the megatrends? More demand for electricity, the internationalization of, of, liquid, of natural gas, particularly gas from the U.S., and then, I, you know, I think it's going to be the continuing interdependence globally on uh, uh, hydrocarbon molecules of all kinds, including refined products and crude. Uh, that market has been international for a long time. But I think it just simply that after the Russian invasion, I think, you know, company, countries like India are going to play a bigger role with their refining capacity. Uh, the U.S. market is going to continue to be one of the biggest because we, you know, we're such a, a wealthy country and we have 280 million vehicles. So. You know, we're not going to run them on, on quinoa. We need gasoline and diesel fuel and jet fuel. And so those things, I think those trends are going to be, those mega trends are going to continue because the system is so big. It's, we can't change anything else in anything like the near term. And by that, I mean 20, 10 to 20 years. Yeah. And Russian oil, it would be interesting to know what, you know, the people with power are thinking because Russian oil, when it, slowed down when production slowed down they had to release the spr to bring crude oil into check you yeah, know and it's i, I don't think they necessarily a, wanted to do yeah, that but that was a political ploy by biden that you know he he accomplished a couple things one was he brought the price of gasoline in the u.s down right by selling S, spr oil that he'd bought on the cheap and selling it you know or, or they they didn't get it wasn't a good deal for the u.s consumer but he also had the effect of screwing the American domestic producers, right? Because it's like, well, you add a million barrels a day into the marketplace and you're the government. Well, that's a million barrels that then the independents can't sell. So it achieved kind of two different things that were good for Biden. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, screw the oil companies twice. You know? <laughs> so I'm going to screw them on the price and I'm going to sue them, screw them on their market and you know, and because I can do it before the midterm election. So the SPR thing to me is just painful because I think it's that the, 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 it was not designed for price arbitrage for politicians. It was designed solely for a crisis times. And instead of being used in a crisis, it was used as a political ploy. And I just thought that was just wrong. I, you know, I understand the politics of it, but it's just, uh, I think it, it, it shows the corruption of our uh, how the politicians in our country think about energy uh, more broadly. And I use that corruption word very advisedly, but I think it's just a indicative of how craven a lot of the policy is when it comes to these kinds of issues. Yeah, and politics are a whole nother world. It's a it's, you know, it's its own being and it's, you know, sometimes very difficult to have a discussion on politics without getting, you know, kind of heated in either direction. I find it's kind of a, a trigger at yeah. times. Um, but you know, it's at the same time, politicians have a lot of power. So it's, it's not something that you can necessarily ignore even as an investor, because for example, you know, regardless of 
you know, anybody's view on the energy transition, I think that some of these things are going to happen regardless. So, you know, whether, whether I agree with it or whether, you know, my neighbor or whoever agrees with it or not, I think some of those things may still happen. So, you know, with, with politics, it's something that I find is really hard to, to follow because it's not as, you know, technical. It's not like, you know, with oil, you say, well, these guys can't produce as much oil as the world needs with politics. It's hard to follow because they kind of just go with whatever seems to be happening. Right. Um, so, so let me ask you, I mean, you've been interviewing me. So you, you said you're investor focused. Well, so what do you, what makes sense to you? Where do you, I ask this of a lot of people I talk to, what makes sense to you as an investment strategy? What, what stocks or what, you know, t give me, give me, give me the, give me your, your pitch on where, what your, how you, what your narrative is. Sure. Yeah. You know, the, the entire reason that I, I initially started with a blog and the reason I did that was because I saw that there was a gap in the information available on carbon credits. And for me, carbon credits are, were very interesting because it's a way for an oil company or somebody who has a large emission output to reduce their carbon by offsetting right. with, with a project, right? So, you know, yeah. you, you have, you know, a thousand tons of carbon, you can offset 500 if you plant 500 trees kind of thing. So for me, my view on carbon credits is I agree with you. I think that the transition is going to be much slower than people think. And I think that fossil fuels are going to be around a, a lot longer, but I also think that politicians are going to push it in the direction that they want regardless. So they're going to right. say, you need to cut your emissions no matter what. And they're going to say, it's not doable. We're going to have to do it through carbon offsetting and carbon credits. So that is, you know, kind of my thesis is that the politicians aren't going to give up, but the actual ability for companies to follow through on these emission standards is impossible without offsetting. Right. Um, so what do you, you think my, about you that you thesis? Want, you want my, you my take on the carbon credits thing, the whole. Sure. Yeah. Martin Luther would recognize this, right? These are indulgences that would be sold by the Catholic Church if that was possible today, right? There would be many cathedrals would be built on these carbon credits. They're like, this mm -hmm. is a carbon indulgence. And, you know, it's just silliness. And when you get down to it, it doesn't. You know, you, I, you know, I fly and you can always on United or some of these, oh, you can offset your emissions and we'll plant trees over here. And, you know, okay, well, you'll do that, but you haven't made my, the CO2 that was burnt, that was created by the jet that I flew on. It doesn't disappear. You've just made me pay you money for something that makes me feel a little better. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make the CO2 disappear. That doesn't happen. And yet, you know, it's like the indulgences the Catholic Church used to sell and that Martin Luther ended up tacking his things on the, you know, the, the church in, in, in Germany, wherever it was, Vicksburg, not Vicksburg. I, I'm getting my, my Lutheran history mis, mixed up, but it's just the whole thing is, is, a, is a charade, I think. And, you know, and somebody's making money here and, and the consumer's being misled that this is somehow okay. You've, you've, You've we've absolved you of your carbon sin. Go on your way and do no repent. I mean, it's just you know the whole thing. It just, <laughs> I mean, it really is almost beyond caricature. Mm -hmm. And you know, like I say, 
as you said, somebody is making money in that space. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm not a scientist, but I do know that if the regulatory framework says that they need to have this many, you know, emissions and they can't achieve that because it's not possible and they allow them to offset it through this measure, I think that there's some opportunity there. And for me, it's all about the dollars. You know, I'm not, I'm not focused on, you know, to, to be honest, I, I don't think I have the technical education to know whether these things work or not. I just want to follow what I think could be a good investment. But I thought I could ask you because you're, you're obviously more in tune with politics and especially in the States, um, maybe in a Canadian, do you think that they're, the politicians are going to continue this trend of energy transition and, and greening the economy, a green economy, low carbon economy, or do you think they're going to get enough pushback from the population that they'll slow down and, and stop that? Well, okay. So I'll answer it this way, Joe. I think that it's energy is the perfect thing to, to demagogue about or about which to be a demagogue, right? So, you heard the State of the Union, uh, you know, President Biden slamming the oil companies. Oh, these ridiculous profits that they're making. And, you know, and oh, well, they should be responsible corporations and they should be drilling more. OK, well, wait a minute. This is the same president who's tried to block them from drilling. And yet he's castigating them for not drilling enough. Well, which is it, Mr. President? Which do you want? But this is part of the standard playbook. And I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm disgusted. But the Democratic Party for years, for decades, in fact, has been the, the demagoguing against the oil and gas industry. It's part of their playbook. It's part of the climate activist NGOs climate uh, playbook. Oh, big, bad oil companies. Well, OK, I get the claim and I get the demagoguery. But why aren't you protesting about coal production in China? Why aren't you trying to stop the, the, the construction of those projects in India? What, 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 the, the, the reason is because it's easy, right? You've got the, the, the disconnect, Joe, is consumers love their gasoline. They love their BMWs and their snowmobiles and their, you know, goo gaws and, but they're trained to hate the oil companies. So the, you know, Doomberg says it right in the battle between physics and platitudes, physics remains undefeated. And we use oil we use oil because if we didn't, if oil didn't exist, we would have to invent it. So there, the demagoguery around energy and power will continue because the politicians don't have, or the NGOs, they don't have to deliver electrons or molecules. All they have to do is set policy. They don't have to actually deliver anything physical. And therein lies the, the issue, which is it's an asymmetric fight. So you have these climate NGOs who have massive amounts of money, and I mean billions of dollars per year, far outspending the traditional energy providers and the think tanks that are in more or less aligned with them. And so it's just not a fair fight. And the policy NGOs, they win by passing a policy. They don't have to deliver anything physical. Whereas the traditional producers, and by that I mean the nuclear industry, the, the, the traditional uh, uh, oil and gas companies and even the utilities, they have to deliver those, those electrons and molecules. And if they don't, the politicians can say, you mfs right you're not doing what you're supposed to do it's all your fault and they can demagogue then against not just the individual the industry itself against the individual companies such as exxon mobil chevron or you name it yeah energy is just such a big topic 
and it's so easy to dilute it down to like oversimplify it i think you know it's it's so easy to just go out there and say we need to you know cut emissions and still have power and it's like well you know there's all those things we just talked about there's the grid there's where's the materials come from there's you know inflation there's all of these things surrounding there's you know global political issues there's the saudi power us china sure. you know relations going on and it's just such a big crazy world but i mean i know this is kind of your thing so um i think we can probably end it there if you want to give people an opportunity to find more of your content cuz like as i say there's so much more to the energy world than we've discussed today. And I know you cover a lot of those topics. So sure. I just want to give you the opportunity to, uh, you know, advertise your product a little bit, your content. You bet. Well, thanks, Joe. Um, so yeah, quickly, uh, robertbrice.substack.com. I'm making, uh, really putting a lot of focus onto Substack because I think it's a really important platform. And uh, uh, my friend Doomberg has been very encouraging. And Doomberg, I know, has been on your podcast, Joe. So I'm following Doomberg's lead. Um, I'm, I'm easy to find on the interweb. RobertBryce.com is my website. We didn't talk about the Renewable Rejection Database, which is a project I've been working on now for oh, more than eight years, cataloging the rejections of wind and solar projects and restrictions on wind and solar projects. That's on my website, RobertBryce.com. I'm on Twitter, at PWRHungry, at PowerHungry. I'm on TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn. You can't miss me. So uh, how about that? How's, uh, but uh, yeah, RobertBryce.substack.com. If I'm going to send you anywhere, go there. That's awesome. I appreciate uh, all the content and information you shared today and uh, wish you the best in your endeavors there. That's very kind, Joe. Let me know when this uh, is going to air and I'll uh, push it out on Twitter. Absolutely. Appreciate that. All right, my friend. Thanks. Take care. See ya. You too. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. Thank you.